here that seem like a paradox, Lord, that are hard to sometimes make sense of. So just illuminate your passage through your spirit and give us insight. Help us see what we should learn about you, but also what we should learn about ourselves. Lord, it's so easy to see this as just history and shake our heads and say, how could they not see? But there are so many things that we can learn about our own lives through this story, Lord. And Lord, when we, when we ponder and, and try to make sense of this, we just pray that you patiently walk us through this and help us see your justice, your truth, your love. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right. Welcome on an obviously very cool evening. We're in uh, 2 Kings 16, 17 tonight. Uh, a significant um, set of chapters in this study. Uh, probably one of the most significant set of chapters. Uh, 16... Uh, we're we're going to be talking about Ahaz, and just a reminder that Ahaz is the king through much of uh, Isaiah. We're going to be looking at a passage from Isaiah that, and you're going to, on a Sunday morning as we go through the study of Isaiah, you're going to hear about Ahaz more than once. And he is uh, probably um, either worst or second worst or tied for worst king in Judah's history. Manassas is the other one that's going to be coming up in a little bit that's tied with him. He sets a new standard, and, and in spite of that, somehow he is not destroyed, but Israel is. So we're going to be looking at that paradox, also uh, seeing how Ahaz uh, finds God insufficient and not trustworthy. In so many ways. So let's go to chapter 16, verse 1 of 2 Kings.
So Ahaz uh, becomes king. He uh, reigns for 16 years himself. He, he's uh, co-regent uh, for a period of time with his father. And, and he, uh, he has a statement that he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Remember, he's the king of Judah. And the kings of Israel are bad, right? None of them are good. And so he takes being a bad southern king to a new level. So if you remember right, um, Josiah, Josiah uh, married the daughter of the northern king, Ahab, and, and she led him astray. Here, Ahaz doesn't marry anybody. He just goes that far. And he does several things that we need to point out. Uh, one of which is he fully adopts the worst practices of the nations that were driven out before um, the Israelites. Israelites meaning the totality of, of uh, the people of God. So we have, we have uh, burnt offerings of their son. We're going to see uh, here not only worshiping in the high places but, and in the hills, but in the um, every green tree. And that, that relates to the, uh, sexual practices that are part of some of the, the divine worship of the day. So basically, he employs all the worst of the nations they drove out. And as we're going to see in a little bit, he... Uh, actually goes at the temple and starts, um, as somebody said, remodeling the temple. That would be a nice way of putting it. There's a bit of a history, though, that we have to understand. Uh, Rezin is the king of Syria. And what uh, Rezin and Pekah decide to do, um, here's, here's Syria, Ram, right? Here's Judah. And here's all the, there's Israel. And here's all these other little countries. So Syria, now Syria, not Assyria. I know they get confused. Syria, the smaller regional power just north of Israel. Assyria is up here and becomes basically a global power in its day. Global for what is the known world for that. So Syria and Israel get together. They unite all these little countries and they want Judah to join them to go against Assyria. They feel that Assyria is starting to put pressure from the north, and clearly uh, Syria is feeling the heat. As we've already seen, they've already attacked Syria. They've actually taken some of uh, Syria away, and they've taken some of the um, Israel away. What they actually do is they come around and go through Phoenicia. Here's Mediterranean. They come through Phoenicia and take out the western part of Syria and the northern part of Israel. So these two get together, get Edom, Moab, and they try to get Judah and, and unite to go against Syria. Ahaz won't do it. He won't be part of their alliance, um, Sino-Palestinian uh, uh, alliance is what it's called in history, and he refuses to join them. So they, they essentially attack him to force him to be a part of their alliance. And remember, Ahaz is, is the king that is very much in the time of Isaiah. And if we turn to Isaiah um, chapter 6, we see where Isaiah is talking to Ahaz about this very event. 
with, at verse 3, he says, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son. Go out and meet him. Tells him where to meet him. And say to him, say to Ahaz, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. And he's speaking of resin, okay, in the north, and Pekka, Israel. Resin, Syria, Pekka. He calls them um, smoldering stumps of firebrand. In other words, they're nothing. They're not, you know, they're not a fire. They're just smoldering. Don't worry about them. And, and then he talks about the fierce anger of resin, of Syria, and Pekka. Because Syria and Ephraim, he refers to the northern kingdom, Israel, as Ephraim. And then he refers to the son of uh, Remelon, which is Pekah, has devised evil against you. So these two have devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it, says the Lord. So what God is telling Isaiah to tell Ahab, or Ahaz, is these two are going to plot against you, are going to kill you, and they're going to put somebody in your place that will go along with their alliance, okay? Because you've said, I won't go along with you. They're going to, they're going to kill you. And what he says is, um, don't worry about it. I got it. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. It's not going to happen because I'm going to stop it. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim, that's Israel will be scattered from being a people. In other words, predicting that they're going to be conquered. And the head of Ephraim is uh, Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son, is Pekah, essentially. If you are not firm in faith, you will, be, you will not be firm at all. If you are not firm in faith. So what he's telling them is, these two are coming to get you, but don't worry about it. I got it. I got have got this. And I, if you stand in faith, you'll be fine. If you don't stand in faith, you won't stand at all, okay? So trust me. And he goes on in the rest of that to talk about uh, uh, Emmanuel coming and, and the promise of a Savior, and that clearly looks beyond. So, so these two try, and, and so what does Ahaz do? Well, he stands in faith, right? He stands firm in God. He trusts God. No, not at all. He goes um, up here. I wish I had a good map that showed. I mean, I've got, I've got um, this map that shows Assyria. This is Assyria, okay? And here, right there is the area we're talking about, okay? So he goes up to Assyria, or actually at this point, they're right here. And goes to Syria to King um, uh, Tiglath, uh, and we're going to see there's actually three Syrian or three Assyrian kings during this time. We're going to see two of them. One isn't isn't named. He goes to the king and says, "Hey, I'm willing to to give you a bunch of money, and I'm willing to be your vassal if you save me from these guys." Well, he's already there. He's already down to here. And taking this, he goes, sure, I'll just go wipe them out. And that's what he does. He goes in and wipes out Syria, conquers Damascus, and essentially destroys it. Syria is not a power 
ever again of any size in that, uh, in that area um, for that extended period of time. So, he, he, and this is going to drive Isaiah nuts. Isaiah is going to say, you got to be kidding me. Why did you do this? I stood right in front of you and told you specifically, don't do this, and yet you did it. And he asked, you know, he'll ask him, as we'll see in a few months, why? Why didn't you trust God? Question, I guess, we could still be asked sometimes today. So he, he does that. He creates himself a vassal. He literally said, what does he say? He says, I'm your son, right? He said, I'm your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And I'll give you basically almost everything I've got. A little thing that we should talk about. Deuteronomy is seen as a, a suceray vassal king relationship, okay? Where a, a nation, the nation of Israel, commits itself to be a vassal or a uh, lesser entity under the kingship or suzerain kingship of God. And that's the way it's supposed to be. God is their king, and they commit themselves to being under him. What Ahaz does is basically exchanges Assyria for, for God. He goes, I'm just going to make myself and my country vassals under you, Assyria, and, and you come and rescue me. And in the short term, it works. He's rescued. They get wiped out, and, and he's saved. And so if you interview Ahaz, you know, shortly after this alliance is made, basically a three-year period of time, and say, how'd that work out for you? He's going to go, it was awesome. It was great. Oh, it cost me some money, and I got to pay him tribute all the time. But really, it worked out great because I thought I was going to get wiped out with the rest of them. But see, it was great. And, and that's kind of a theme tonight is we're going to ask ourselves, we've got a really bad king, arguably as bad a king, the worst or second worst king or tied for worst in Judah's history, okay? Guy that does everything that's an affront to God. And we're going to see in a little bit, we've got an Assyrian, or I mean an Israel king who's bad, they all are, but he's not as bad as some of them. Yet in that moment, Judah is spared and Israel is destroyed. Why? Why wasn't Judah destroyed because they got the worst king they're ever going to have? And why isn't Israel spared? Because their king's not nearly as bad as other kings. And if, if you're going to destroy Israel, why didn't you destroy them back when you had you know, Ahab or, or some of the other really bad kings? Why now? And one of our issues is we sometimes so associate a current event with immediate things that we miss that God may be bringing something about after decades, or in this case, hundreds of years of activity or unfaithfulness or sin, or we're going to see it's going to lay out here. And so, so it's, it's taking the big picture and kind of stepping back. You know, they always say you can't train a dog. You have to, if you catch a dog, you have to right away, as soon as the dog does something you don't want, you have to train them because if you do it four hours later, they don't associate. Well, we're sometimes like that. We don't associate. 
God's going to, in chapter 17, go chapter and verse through everything that Israel has done bad since the exodus. Now is just the, the judgment day. And that delayed judgment is, throws us off so often. We've talked about it before. You know, we wish you had the zapper some ways, many ways we don't, because then we'd get the direct correlation. There are people today that are, that are going to face God's judgment and are going to end up spending eternity separated from God, and they're going to go, well, well, what? What happened? I mean, I lived my whole life. I lived, whatever, 80 years, and God, God seemed to be blessing me with all this wonderful stuff, all this money, all this other stuff, and then all of a sudden judgment comes, and what happened? God is just and truthful over the totality of, of time. And just because he's slow, long-suffering in bringing about punishment doesn't mean it's not going to come. So Ahaz goes up to Damascus. Remember, they just conquered um, Assyria up here, just conquered Israel, Damascus. He goes up to Damascus to meet Tig, as I like to call him, shortened version of the Assyrian king. Goes up to meet him in Damascus. And he goes into their temple. Now remember, this would be the, the Syrian God's temple, not even Assyria. He goes in and he says, wow, they got some cool stuff. Look at that altar. That'd be neat. Here, let me call Uriah, my priest, and say, hey, here's the description. Build me one of these. So he does. He builds it. Now, why? I mean, you could say he's trying to align with Assyria, but Assyria is going to look at the, the Syrian God and go, we just conquered Syria. Syria's God is nothing. In fact, it wouldn't be uncommon in Assyria to take the, the idols, the gods, and put them out by the gates and march the people by them saying, this is the God that failed you. Don't ever worship this God again. You can. They don't force their captive people to worship their gods, but they're just going to remind them, your God did nothing for you. We just defeated you. So why would he pick a, a defeated God to worship? Because there's something in Ahab that, or Ahaz that, that clearly he has not found a God that has satisfied him. He's worshiping all, he's still worshiping Yahweh. We see that in this passage. Now he's built a new altar, but he's still worshiping Yahweh. He's doing the Yahweh worship things or having his priest do it. He's worshiping all these other gods. And now he finds a new God. He goes, I'll have that too. It's just never enough. He's constantly saying, no, I need one more God. And what does that say about him? I mean, it'd be one thing if, if Yahweh and, you know, Baal, okay, or Yahweh and Moloch or Yahweh and whoever, but it's never enough. When there's never, and when God is never enough, when gods are never enough, Clearly, that speaks to who is God then. Right. So it's interesting how he goes out, he builds all this. And, and this is, we're going to see this in Manassas, the other really bad uh, king. God gave the, the general idea of how the temple's going to look to, to Moses, and then he specifically gave it to David, and David gave it to Solomon and got built by God's instructions. Now he's doing a remodel. 
I mean, it's kind of like this property that's on the historic register and you want to go remodel it, frowned upon. He wants to remodel God's temple. And not only does he want to remodel it, he wants to take the, the bronze altar and set it aside for himself. He wants to use it to divine things. In other words, seek deity guidance, which is a big no-no. And he wants to use that altar to do that. That's how far he gets away from what he's supposed to do. And yet, he is not destroyed. And Israel is. Well, let's go to that destruction. Let's go to chapter 17. Let's just talk about Hosea. If you remember, Hosea killed uh, Pekah. We get that back in 15, um, well, 29 through 31. And if, if you look at the uh, extra biblical or the, the, uh, uh, the writings or chronicles of the king of Assyria, the king of Assyria says that he caused Hosea to, to murder Pekah and he put him on the throne. So it sounds like Hosea is kind of already in a relationship with the Assyrian king. And so he kills Pekah and becomes king. And so it's all good. He's a, he's a vassal. Now this is before the conquest of Assyria, by, of Israel. He, he's all good. He's, he's you know good vassal. He's paying him money. He's doing what he's supposed to do just to keep everybody happy. And then for some reason, he decides that he doesn't want to be aligned with Assyria. He wants to align himself with Egypt down here, okay? Assyria up here, Egypt down here. Yeah, just... Okay. Okay, so this is, you know, Jerusalem right there, Damascus, okay. So he's just being the good vassal, paying, doing whatever he wants him, you know. For whatever reason, that's not working for him, and he decides he's going to try to get an alliance with Egypt. Egypt at this time is, is very weak. It's just starting to come back and becoming a regional power, but it is nothing like the, uh, the more global power of Assyria. So he does that. And then the other thing is he stops paying tribute. And you want to get in trouble? Two things. Stop paying them and revolt. Well, he stops paying them and now he's trying to get an ally to go revolt. Well, that's it. And so uh, Assyria comes down and literally just destroys uh, Israel. They siege 
Samaria, we've already talked about what sieges are like. Horrible thing. Sieges, uh, puts a siege on Samaria for three years. So clearly people are starving to death and, and they're just brutal. And so they, they destroy it. And we can say again, why? Why did this happen? We know it's from God, but why did this happen? And what we get in the second or the first half of, of 17 is this detailed litany of why God destroyed Israel. And uh, so let's look at that now, starting verse 7 or verse 6. Oh, so that's why he destroyed them. Got it. He goes through a litany, and, and so what we're talking about is not what happened under uh, Hosea 
or what happened under any of those other kings, we're talking its culmination from literally the time they left Egypt. 1450 to 722, 720 years of literally doing everything he told them not to do. Everything. From taking on the religions of the countries that are driven out. We even go and go back to Kadesh Barnea and their failure to, to enter the promised land. And he goes through everything that they did that he told them not to do. And yet they did it. And clearly there was no fear in them of God. They, they took on the idols. They, they uh, set up their own religion under Jeroboam. They went through all this. And it isn't what the current generation, it's this history. And really it became that history that carried them along. It seems like, you know, when they, they went into the promised land, it started well and then it started to go bad. And then under Solomon, it really went bad. And then the divided kingdom and they never found their footing again because of this separate religion and the rebellion against the Davidic covenant and David being king. And so God wipes them out. And we're going to see in detail how he wipes them out. He, he puts them into exile, but that isn't, again, the key factor. And we can look at Assyria, and if you're a, if you're a secular historian, you go, well, why the difference between Israel and Judah when they went into captive after they were conquered was just the Assyrians kind of wiped you out. They, they repopulated, as we're going to see in a second, and they, they put you and don't allow you to be distinctive in any way. They just acculturate you, intermarriage, just basically you disappear. And the Babylonians just did it differently. They allowed you to go in there, stay together into small groups, and they didn't repopulate the area. And that's how most of us, quite frankly, often look at history. We come up with a secular understanding of why events happen. Well, this is what makes sense. This is what these people do. This is why this happened. This is why this happened. And yet, clearly in this situation, as we see throughout the Bible, the Bible sees God's hand causing this to happen. And he leaves, in this case, a remnant. And that's what Judah is. A Judah is a remnant of his people. Twelve tribes. There's one and a half tribes left. The tribe of Judah and a half tribe of Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin's territory gets cut in half. Half goes north to Israel. Half goes south to, to Judah. And so a half tribe of Benjamin. And he keeps that as his remnant. Now that remnant is going to have a remnant after Judah's conquered. And he's always keeping this remnant of his people left. And yet they still don't Heated, as he says in 19, they do not keep the commands of the Lord, but walked in the ways of Israel, or the ways Israel introduced. So they're watching this, and Ahaz is going, okay, wow, this worked out great. I bought of Assyria, they free me, and then they destroy not only Syria, but they destroy eventually um, Israel. And I was spared. My way worked. You see, I got the outcome I wanted. And yet this is just a culmination. This is another sin, another 
rejection of God that will culminate in 586 in the destruction of Judah. Just as all those rejections of God in the northern kingdom culminate in this destruction that we're seeing here. We need to look at this passage. It's really powerful, but it can get a little confusing as to who he's talking about at any particular paragraph. Just to remind ourselves what happens, Assyria basically takes, um, they conquer Israel, and they actually get somewhat close into Judah. They conquer Israel and take um, 15 to 24,000, depending on. So 
more or less anybody that's anybody, it takes them out of Israel and disperses them up in other conquered areas and in Assyria, okay? And then they take other conquered people and take them back and resettle in Israel. The idea is Assyria thinks that as long as you have a, an ethnic or national identity, you're a threat. So we need to take out the distinctive of any uh, national or ethnic or religious distinctive that you have by mixing you all up, okay? It's kind of like their great melting pot approach. So they do that, and that is what they commonly do. They don't always do it. depends on how big the country is, but that's what they do to Israel. And so it takes intermarriage and all that. During this exodus the people that are taken out of Israel don't set up synagogues, places of worship outside of their own country. And that's a distinctive because what Judah's going to do is Judah's going to go into exile and they're going to set, they're going to stay together. They're going to be spread out, but they're going to be staying together in clumps. And the center of that staying together is going to be the synagogue. They're going to start synagogues and that's going to be places of worship so they can keep their faith, keep their ethnic identity. Okay. The ten tribes of Israel don't do that. They just go out, intermarry, start taking on the gods of the area, and then the ones that come into this area intermarry with the people left behind, and they 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 do two things. They bring in all their own gods. So you just saw this whole pantheon of gods. There's all these gods because all these people brought their gods from where they came from. And then they set up their own Yahweh-like religion. And you can say, well, wait a minute. I thought Israel already had that with Jeroboam, when Jeroboam set up Bethel and Dan as two places of worship and the calves and set up their own kind of worship. That's true. They do another derivative of that, okay? And, And as we see, they come into the area and... They believe in the time, you always believed in territorial gods. Each chunk of land had a god. Just like every tree had a god and and crops had gods and so there are many gods. So territory had a god. And so that's their thinking. Well, if you're going to reside in the promised land, you're going to fear God. Now, we're going to use fear God in two different ways. So fear God means you're going to know he exists and you're going to fear him. That doesn't mean that you're in covenant relationship with him, that you fear him only, that you're one of his people. You're just going to acknowledge his existence and you're going to worship or acknowledge that in your practice. So he sends these lions to, what, get their attention. And so they go, wait, this is obviously the God of the land, small g in the Bible. We don't know what to do. Send us somebody. So the king sends one priest. You know how big this territory is? You know how many people there must be in this territory? He sends one priest. And where does the priest go? Bethel. Bethel, the great affront to God. The place that the calves are, or one of the calves are, this place that worship took place as a great rejection and affront to God. He goes to Bethel. And he institutes Yahweh-like worship. So the people go, oh, 
okay, so we'll fear God because we're getting killed by lions. I'm going to fear God. I'm going to worship God, but I'm going to worship all my other gods, and I'm not in a covenant or relationship with God. I'm just going to acknowledge his existence, okay? Now, Israel was to fear God in a covenant situation, in a much closer relationship situation. And what the Bible's telling us is these new people coming in, they feared God more than the Israelites did. How can that be? I mean, these guys are just coming in from outside. They have no history. They aren't the chosen people. They don't have the Mosaic Law. They don't have any of this. And they aren't right with God. And they don't worship him exclusively, but they fear him more than the Israelites who were in the territory before. How can that be? I mean, what's, what's stunning is, is people go to, to parts of the world that, that don't know about Jesus Christ. And, and God will reveal himself in a powerful way. And they'll fear God way more than lifetime Christians back in America. Sometimes there's a, there's a comfortableness, there's a complacency that, that comes in because, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, so, you know, I, I worship Jesus Christ, so I'm all good. But we don't fear God because we haven't experienced the power of God. And yet some people in a far-off land who really haven't worshipped Christ and don't know Christ but have some kind of event happen, they actually come to fear God in a new and powerful way because they see him and don't have the complacency. Tons of books are written on this. You know, the, the, you know, the problems of growing up Christian and all these other things, how we can just get complacent. And the Israelites were clearly, among a whole bunch of other things, complacent. And what happens when we fast forward to, to the New Testament? What does the Jew say? I don't need no Savior. I'm one of the chosen ones. I'm a person of God. Don't you know that I'm from the tribe of Judah? I am already right with God. Because they cannot conceive of fearing God. Because God owes them because they're Jews. It's one of the most stunning passages in all of 1st and 2nd Kings that these people that really should have no reason to fear God, fear God in a way more powerful than the Israelites. Now, doesn't mean they worship him right. Doesn't mean that he worships them exclusively. Isn't mean that they're in a right relationship and that they have any covenant. They don't. But God says, if you're in this land, you will fear me. And the Egypts, I mean the Israelites who go off, who forget that it was a God that took them out of Egypt, that God gave them the promised land that drove out the people before them, that saved them even though many, 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 many times they deserved to be crushed and destroyed, that he didn't. Then find themselves saying, why did you crush us? And then find themselves in exile going, oh, that's a nice God. I think I'll adopt that God and that God and forget completely about the fact that they were the chosen ones of Yahweh. It's a stunning turn of events in this whole narrative. 
And, and what these people then become in the New Testament is Samaria. And we see the roots of it here, but it's full-blown in, in the New Testament. Jesus, when he meets the, the woman at the well, talks about her religion. And they eventually build a temple in Gerizim, on Mount Gerizim. And they build this alternate temple because they can't get to Judah and they can't get to uh, Jerusalem to the temple there. Uh, or they could, but they choose not to for what that would require them in, in being united with Judah. So they build their own temple. They build their own scripture off scripture. They pick parts of what we call the Old Testament and call that scripture. They develop their own priests and their own priesthood in this uh, religion. So they do all these things and they come to hate the Jew and the Jew hates the Samaritan to the point where in Jesus' day, a Jew won't even walk through Samaria. They'll go all the way around to get to Galilee, which is up here, all the way around because they don't want anything to do with the Samaritans because they see them as half-breed, that they were half-Israelite and half all these repopulated people to the point that they're no longer Israelites at all. So we've been following through this for, for a, a book and a half or more than a book and a half, and we come to this moment, which we know is coming. I just find it always so stunning that it happened when it happened. This king is certainly not the worst king. Judah is way in worse shape than, than Israel right now. But they got crushed now. And not only crushed, but wiped out. I mean, Judah, we're going to see in, in, in Isaiah, and we're going to see in 2 Kings, there's hope for Judah. I mean, Jeremiah says, there's a day. No prophet is saying that about Israel. No prophet is predicting a future for Israel. Those 10 tribes are lost. So, remember this. Remember this chapter as we go into Isaiah. Because you're going to hear a lot about Ahaz, and you're going to hear a lot of texts talking about this period of time. And literally, Isaiah, as Jeremiah was with Judah, is pleading, is pleading with them to do what's right in the eyes of God. And it's just like us today. The Bible pleads, God pleads with us through the Bible to do what's right in his eyes. All right. Well, I'm going to leave it up to you to figure out how to go into discussion groups. I don't know if you want to combine some discussion groups or what you want to do. Why don't you figure out